Whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas and the like, either by forbearing labor, feasting, or in any other way, shall pay for each offense five shillings as a fine to the country. That law was <clears throat> passed in 1659 in this country by the Pilgrim Fathers. It was repealed about 30 years later in 1681, except <clears throat> Massachusetts didn't repeal it until just about 100 years ago in 1856. It was a crime to celebrate Christmas in this country. And prior to that, uh, for some 30 years, it had been a crime in England, passed by Parliament, to celebrate Christmas. Immediately our ears prick up and we wonder why. To some extent, uh, it goes back to the principle we spoke of last week, uh, the regulative principle, and namely the fact that such observance is not commanded in Scripture. And generally speaking, we worship God only in the way he is commanded or we offer false worship. But uh, another reason for it having been repealed was the carnal way in which it was worshipped. And anyone who does any listening to the radio or Christmas shopping gets some feel of what the Pilgrim Fathers uh, didn't like about Christmas. It is terribly abused. It becomes a very carnal institution. Uh, listening on the radio this past week, I heard some rather bizarre Christmas gifts that are being advertised by various department stores. Uh, one department store, a jewelry store, will make you up a gold replica of your house studded with diamonds for $10,000. Uh, another rather bizarre gift, a chinchilla sleeping bag for $5,000. Uh, I believe that's exactly what my wife needs. <clears throat> uh, we, we hear these things, and uh, matter of fact, one department store in Dallas is offering a real ark with animals. The whole works, and it's about $10,000. And we read these and hear about them, and uh, our hearts are repelled. Uh, the carnality and the wastefulness, uh, the wrong observance of Christmas. Christmas observance is not commanded, <clears throat> thus it is not oblig <clears throat> obligatory. It was not even celebrated prior to the fourth century. And... When they finally began celebrating it in about the 4th century, they had five different dates that men uh, thought Christ was born on and that it was celebrated on. June the 6th, February the 2nd, March 25th, April 19th, May 20th, and some had uh, December 25th. Finally, in the 4th century, about 350, they stabilized the day as December 25th. And... Uh, that's as good a guess as any. It has uh, become materialistic, and uh, 
we can understand the sentiment and the desire, maybe, to outlaw it. But at the same time, uh, it's probably expedient, in spite of the abuse, to observe it. It does uh, give an occasion when even non-Christians listen to Christmas carols, which have a whole lot of truth in them, Christmas hymns. Uh, it is an occasion when uh, we reflect on the great incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have a parallel in the Old Testament for remembering certain events like this. It's probably nothing unscriptural in doing this if we do it in a proper way. It's a time when we reflect on the great passages of Scripture that speak of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the significance that these have to us in our present situation. One of these passages is the one we read from this morning in Isaiah 9, the famous part, Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. His name shall be called a Wonderful Counselor, so on. Now that uh, seems particularly applicable today because of the situation that they were in in Isaiah's day as a nation and the situation that our nation is in today. The situation that their nation was in is pictured figuratively by Isaiah in the 8th chapter in the 22nd verse as he says, and they shall look up under the earth, and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. In every direction, darkness. I think any honest uh, look at our nation, the situation she's in, the bitter foe of communism gradually performing their plan, and uh, the fall of Chile, a very serious blow to the free world. Very, very serious blow to the free world. The Assyrians were invading and threatening. The great army of Sennacherib was threatening Israel. Within the nation's sin, without this foe, the foe being brought upon them as a judgment of God. And who doesn't feel that? In our day, we would think that a nation that was in the situation our nation is in would get on its knees and cry out to God, like England did in World War II when Hitler was going to invade her. But our nation seems to be doing the exact opposite. Darkness in every direction. Isaiah is given a vision into that situation. Not only this vision of darkness, but he sees on the horizon of this gathering storm, he sees a bright spot in his vision. Bright spot. In verse 1 of chapter 9, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. This is one of those unfortunate and rare occasions when the King James translation is not very helpful. And the better translation here 
As the former time degraded the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, so the latter glorifies the way of the sea, the bank of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The same section of the nation of Israel, the same land, is described twice. Once in terms of the tribes that occupied that land, Zebulun and Naphtali. And then it's described in terms of its position geographically with reference to the Jordan and the Sea of Tiberias. We're speaking of the area known as Galilee, way up in the northern part of Israel, next to the Gentiles, next to the heathens, the most remote part of the nation of Israel. It's described, and it is said that uh, while this land has been degraded and this degradation arose from its proximity and mixture with these heathens, these Gentiles, yet afterward this land would be glorified. God would honor it. The disgrace is to be changed for honor. The present calamity of darkness and nowhere would it be any darker than up there, is going to be exchanged for glory. How will this take place? We're told in verse 2, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. A great light. The great light. As Isaiah looks way into the distant horizon, he sees great light shining on that portion, that darkest portion. This condition, darkness, it's not only a symbol of the danger to the Assyrian, from the Assyrians to that section of the nation, but also a symbol of the sin and the ignorance that possessed those people. The darkness of guilt and doom. They walked in darkness. Their whole course of life was one that could only be characterized by the phrase darkness. Uh, but he gives some comfort. He says, these people who, is, <clears throat> who are, as it were, interned in a dark dungeon and live their life in this dungeon, blind, have seen a great light. This prophecy was fulfilled. The fulfillment of it is described in the fourth chapter of Matthew, starting with about verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, they saw a great light. 
Jesus started preaching in Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus is the light of the world. Men dwell in darkness apart from light from him. But he said that those who followed him would not walk in darkness, but would have the light of life. It was a region not only of darkness, but a region of the shadow of death. Because ignorance and sin leads to eternal death. The wages of sin is death. And men by nature are blind and in the dark, and by nature are guilty. Children of wrath, as it's said in Ephesians. And only as the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines into their life can this death have its sting removed. Can they be forgiven for their sin? Can they be given everlasting life? They dwelt in a land of death because they dwelt in a region of darkness. No revelation. They didn't know about Jesus. This great light leads to great joy. Verse 3, Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. And again, the King James is in error here following a, a wrong manuscript and the word not shouldn't be there. Thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. He speaks of an enlargement of the nation. This enlargement would be when the Gentiles were brought in to become a part of the church, a part of the people of God. In the 11th chapter of Isaiah, only two chapters further on, we have a reference to the Gentiles being brought in. This 11th chapter, one of the great prophecies about the Messiah, in verse 1, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Here's a prophecy of the birth of the Messiah and his characteristics. But then in the 11th verse, 10th verse, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. One of Jesse's offspring, Jesus came from Jesse's family. As he goes on to say, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. God would enlarge the true people by bringing in the Gentiles. This would cause joy. The intensity of the joy of the true people of God as they see the light and as the Gentiles are brought to the light can only be described as the joy of the harvest or the joy of a great victory as we divide the spoil. I think of young man who's here this morning who shared with me yesterday all the different ways that he had sought joy in life and found that 
All Satan's apples got worms. He was placed in the hospital recently. 72-year-old man in the bed next to him had joy. Had joy. Bubbled over with joy. As he got to know this man, he wanted some of that joy. Came home. Group of girls in the apartment next to him had joy. Real joy. Lasting joy. The kind of joy Jesus Christ gives. He wanted that joy. It's available. He's claimed it. The joy such as only Jesus Christ can give. This great joy is also due to a great deliverance. Described in the fourth verse, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. You have here Israel described uh, as one who is like an animal of burden, under a yoke, with a stern taskmaster beating it about the shoulders with a stick. You see, men are not only blind, but they're in bondage. They're in bondage. Jesus said, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. They have a stern taskmaster. In the same context, he said in John 8, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He controls the non-Christian, although the non-Christian is not conscious of having this great taskmaster. But it says here that there would be <clears throat> deliverance from this. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. Charles Wesley describes his own deliverance from, birth, from bondage in the hymn, And Can It Be? As he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Men are in bondage until Jesus Christ diffuses a quickening ray, until the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines into their heart, until they see who Christ was and what he did and commit their life to him. And then their chains fall off, and their heart is free. And the evidence of this freedom is, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You walk in a new way after Jesus Christ. He compares this great deliverance to the deliverance that God wrought in Midian, in the day when Gideon overthrew the Midianites, or God overthrew the Midianites through Gideon. You remember that battle? 400,000 of the Midianites come against God's people. And Gideon gathers his troops and has about 32,000. 
Then God says, tell everyone who's afraid to go home. He winds up with 10,000. And then he says, now let's separate some more. And he winds up with 300. And then God, with those 300, completely routes the 400,000. A victory like that is what will be wrought in this coming day, says Isaiah. And finally he moves uh, to the conflagration uh, that will be a further description of this victory as he says in verse 5, For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Normally, in a victory, uh, there's confusion and noise, but as a result of this victory, the garments, <clears throat> the bloody garments will be consumed in fire, and the instruments of warfare will be burned up. There will be complete peace as a result of this victory, he says. Isaiah says, all of this is the result of the work of the great person who will be given. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The great person who effects this deliverance, who ushers in this light, who brings this joy, who is he? Well, some of our Jewish expositors and some of our so-called Christian expositors say Hezekiah. <laughs> well, I don't believe we can call Hezekiah the mighty God or the everlasting Father. Oh, no. Not Hezekiah. This child will be a human being, but he will also be a son the word in the Hebrew for child here is yelled, which means male child. Why then turn around and call him a son? Why do we have to reiterate the fact that he'll be a male? Because probably here it's the fact that he'll be not only a human being, but will be the son of God uniquely that's being brought before us. He will be the same one as is mentioned in Psalm 2 where God the Father says of his Son, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Or he says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish in the way. The nature of his nativity, <clears throat> Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This birth is unto us, it's for us. We have here the fact that he is born to die, brought before us. He left his father's throne above, says Charles Wesley, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be? 
that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. He's given a son given unto us. Not only was he given then, but he's given now. In O little town of Bethlehem, Phillips Brooks writes, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ enters in. His name, probably the, we've got four titles given here instead of five, probably the first two ought to go together. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be Wonder. He'll be a wonder in his person. He will do wonders. He will be wonderful in his suffering and in his ascension. But he's wonderful in his counseling, in his teaching. He is the great prophet to whom all prophets pointed. He is the truth. Uh, he is the one who reveals God in the fullest, final form. Not only is he a wonderful counselor who gives truth and who guides, who directs, who leads his own, he's the mighty God. He's the God of might. He's God as well as a child born. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. He's the eternal Father. This doesn't speak of his relationship to God, but rather to us. In reference to God, he's not God the Father, he's God the Son. But in reference to his people, he is a father. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth those that fear him. He's an everlasting father. He has always been and he will always be. He's the Prince of Peace. He brings peace on earth and goodwill toward men. The peace that he brings, first of all, is peace between God and man. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Now, that's the greatest darkness that you and I face. The darkness of a God who is holy and is offended by our sin. But to those who believe in him, he gives peace between God and man. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings peace between man and man as he teaches us to love each other and as he changes our natures as the great person. Finally, there's a great kingdom. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. You notice this kingdom that he will found is an increasing kingdom. We have, uh, we're reminded of Daniel's vision <clears throat> that he interprets for the king. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a great image, and it, 
the feet of this image, a stone cut without hands fell and crushed the image. And this stone became a great mountain and filled the earth. And as Daniel interpreted the dream, he said, These other kingdoms represent the kingdoms of this world. But in the days of the last kings, which were the Roman kings, God shall set up a kingdom which will fill the whole earth, will destroy every other kingdom, and itself shall never be destroyed. An increasing kingdom of the increase of his government, there shall be no end, but a peaceful kingdom. As his kingdom spreads, peace spreads. It's a continuation of David's kingdom, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. Christ would rule over God's people, the same people that David ruled over. The Gentiles brought into the one people of God. It would be a just kingdom. With judgment and justice he would establish it. And it would be an eternal kingdom from henceforth even forever. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had another vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. <clears throat> it is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. All of this is done by the Lord of hosts. You notice... It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There was no question of whether these things would happen once Isaiah spoke them. They were so certain to come to pass that he uses the past tense. Unto us a child is born. They that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Didn't happen for 700 more years. But he uses the prophetic perfect. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accompany this. There's no question of whether God will bring his purposes to pass. There's no question of whether the kingdom of God will continue to increase and bring person after person after person into it until it includes all nations, tribes, and languages. No question that it will destroy every other kingdom and last forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It won't be man's doing, it will be God's, but it's sure and certain. You get the thrust of the passage? Here's a dark, gloomy, national situation. And the true people of God are discouraged, both in the church of that day and in the political kingdom of that day, there's nothing but corruption, just like our day. But. Isaiah steps forward and brings to bear on this dark situation a bright light. He says, God is working out his purposes, and God's purposes are tremendous. Just keep your eye fixed on his promises and what he's going to do. Well, if he could bring that to bear on that dark situation, which wouldn't happen for 700 years, how much more does it bring to bear on our dark situation, which has happened, and we know every detail of it was fulfilled? How much comfort does that bring to those who are a part of that 
kingdom which shall increase, which is a just kingdom, which shall crush every other kingdom, which shall never end. I tell you, Christian, you have nothing to be gloomy about. I don't care what happens in this world. Sure, probably America's going to go under. If I was a betting man, I'd bet 90 to 1 it will. Sure, things are dark. I don't believe there's going to be any change in the moral corruption of this nation. I believe God's forsaken the nation. I believe that deep in my heart. But I'm not gloomy. I'm on the winning team. My team's going to go on from victory to victory to victory. I'm part of an everlasting kingdom that's going to crush every other kingdom and spread peace. Let that bear on it. When you look at those dark clouds, look at that bright spot. Keep your eye focused on it. Let some of that joy begin to well up in your heart that he talked about. Joy, like men joy in a great victory or a great harvest. Do you know that deep joy within? Do you think of what brought that joy as Isaiah spoke of? They that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that sat in the region of death, on them hath the light shine. I was walking in darkness. I was headed for hell. And on me has the light shined. It's shown in my dark dungeon. My chains fell off. My heart is free. I rose. I went forth. And I followed him. I can't be sad. Nothing but joy can well up in my heart. Unto you this child is born. Unto us this child is given. I I can't be sad. I can't be sad. Joy. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Have you called him that, Christian? You've received him as your Lord and Savior, but have you found out he's a wonderful counselor? Have you found out he's an everlasting father? Do you have a heavenly father who will look after you? Suppose my son came in and he's wringing his hands and I said, Son, what's the matter? He said, I'm just so worried. I said, what are you worried about? I'm worried about where my clothes are going to come from next week. I said, well, son, have I always clothed you? Yeah, but I'm just so worried. My feelings will be hurt. The next day he's so worried about his food. Why should he worry? I'm going to look after him. Why should I worry? I have a father who's controlling this world, who's going to look after me. No reason for me to worry about a thing, ever. Have you called him father? Have you learned to look on him like that to you, Christian? What shall we render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward us? How can we thank him enough? There is something we can do. In that passage where we read about the light shining on Galilee, and then we read about Jesus starting to preach, repent, we read the very next thing that he did. He called certain disciples and he said, follow me. 
and I will make you fishers of men. How does that kingdom spread? It spreads through people that he causes the light to shine in, and then he causes the light to shine from as they hold forth the word of life, as their lights in this dark world. We can spread this kingdom. We can be a part of it increasing. This is what we can render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward us. We can tell others that sit in a region of darkness and death all around us because they don't know about Jesus Christ. That's our great response. And of course, there would be those present today who are not in the kingdom. And you've got to start at the starting place. You've got to repent. You've got to surrender to Christ as your king. You've got to trust him as your savior, the one who died for you. If so, silently but silently, that wondrous gift will be given to you this very day. Christ, who was born long ago, will be born in your heart, where meek souls will receive him. He enters in. Will you receive him today? If you will, pray in your heart right now the prayer that I pray out loud. Let us bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I have walked in darkness. I acknowledge that I deserve death. Lord Jesus, I believe that Isaiah spoke the truth, that you were given for me, and that you were the mighty God. I want to enter into your kingdom. I surrender to you as my king. I invite you to be born in my heart, and I trust you to forgive my sins on the basis of your death for me. Amen.